Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. The Bible reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his bodies. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Well, we're having a, a little break from our, our series in Galatians. You remember our last sermon in Galatians was looking at how do we make ethical decisions. And so following on the back of that, we're doing a short uh, uh, series entitled Tough Topics, where we're looking at how we interpret the Bible in order to make ethical decisions. Uh, and today we're looking at the issue of male headship. Now, the New Testament seems to merely assume male headship. We see this in Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 22 to 23, states, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the, of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And this has been traditionally interpreted to mean that the husband is the head. The husband has authority over the wife and that the wife must submit. She must obey. She must obey him in everything. As verse 24 continues, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And and traditionally, this has been applied in a way uh, that that means the the husband is the breadwinner and the wife is the stay-at-home mom who looks after the kids and does all the cooking and the cleaning. And this is is how it's been interpreted. And now let's be honest. (laughs) We have a problem with male headship. We have a problem with this idea that Paul says that woman, the wife should submit. And when I say we, I'm referring to 21st century people living in the West. When we read this passage, I mean, it's a controversial passage. When we read this controversial passage, we have a problem with it. And we think, Paul, how can you say that? Are you a sexist? Are you a chauvinist? How can you say that? And so we, living in the 21st century, have a problem with this controversial passage. Do you think that people in Paul's day, living in Paul's culture, had a problem with this passage? 
Yes. This was a highly controversial passage in Paul's day. It might surprise you. This was a highly controversial passage. If we were living in Ephesus in and around the first century, we would also have a major problem with this controversial passage. But our problem would not be with the fact that Paul says, wives submit. When they were reading this letter out to the church in Ephesus, and they read out the, the line, wives submit to your husband, everyone would be nodding, yes, mm, yes. Because that was the done thing. That was the norm within that culture. The shocking bit, the controversial bit, comes in verse 25. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives. As soon as they read that out, everyone would have fallen off their chair, especially the husbands, and would have gone, what? What has Paul just said? How could he say that? This was highly controversial. You see, in order to understand this passage, we need to understand the cultural context. Within the ancient world, they had many household codes. Codes that, that determined how a husband should relate to his wife, how a, a father should relate to his children, and how a master should relate to his slaves. Various household codes. The Jews had their household codes. The Greeks had their household codes. The Romans had their household codes. And within all of these household codes, they all stipulated that a wife must submit. She must obey her husband. And they all stipulated that a husband must lord it over exercise power and authority over, must rule over his wife. I mean, that's a natural opposite. One person rules, the other submits. So, for example, one of the most influential household codes was written by Aristotle, and he says, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the ruler of a master over slaves, which has been discussed already, another a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and a father, we saw, rules over wife and children. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. It just says the elder and the full-grown is superior to the younger and the more immature. In another place, he writes, the courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. Of all classes must be deemed to have a special, a special attributes, as the poet says, of a woman. Silence is a woman's glory, but this is not equally the glory of a man. <laughs> Josephus a Jewish historian writing in the first century. For Scripture says a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. The Bible doesn't say that, by the way. Let her therefore be obedient to him, not so that he should abuse her, but she may acknowledge her duty to her husband, for God hath given the authority to the husband. This is the cultural context that Paul is writing into. A context that merely assumes that the wife will submit and obey and the husband will rule, will have exercise power and authority over his wife. 
Now can you see how, how radical this is? How controversial this passage is in Paul's day? Paul is radically undermining and subverting the hierarchical structure of male headship in his day. In a radical way, subverting it. Now in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. And, and the result of being filled with the Spirit, according to verses 19 through to 21, is that we speak to one another, we sing, we worship, we, we give thanks to God, and the last result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means that we have reverence for Jesus, that, that, that we imitate Jesus. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a mutual submitting to one another. So the question is, if everyone within the church is to submit to one another, then how does this work out practically, especially within the household, where there is already an established hierarchy in, in that culture? How does that work? Well, the quick answer is, well, Paul firstly affirms the traditional hierarchical structure, and then he radically undermines it. <laughs> so we see in, in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. So over here, he's affirming the traditional hierarchical structure of male headship, which was just the norm, the given in that culture. And it made sense in that culture. Uh, the, the wife was merely viewed as the husband's property. There was a massive age gap between the husband and a wife. In that culture, a man would marry at about the age of 30, and the wife would be normally around the age of 15 or 16, sometimes as young as 12 or 13. So a massive age gap. And there's no prior romantic love. This is an arranged marriage. It's an arranged marriage. There's no prior romantic love. A, and, and a woman does not get married. She is given in marriage. I mean, her father basically sells her to his son-in-law. And the woman was uneducated. She was only educated in household chores. Other than that, she's completely uneducated. So within that cultural context, you can see why a wife would submit to the husband, because she's uneducated, she's extremely young, and she's powerless. Now, of course, even within that context, there were still limits to submission, uh, a wife should not submit if it's against the husband's will. I mean, against, if it's against the will of God. As Peter says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than human beings. So that was an, a, a limit to it. And of course, she mustn't submit if her husband is abusive. Why? Because that's against the will of God. Three, in the area of sexual intercourse, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 3 to 4, there needs to be mutual agreement. So other than these exceptions, Paul is affirming the traditional hierarchical structure of male headship. But then he immediately qualifies it and then subverts it. Firstly, he addresses wives directly. 
No other household code does that. All the other household codes address the husband and tell the husband that their wives must obey them. But over here, Paul is speaking to the wives directly. And by doing so, he's restoring their dignity. It also shows you that this verse is not for the husbands. <laughs> now, the husband can't say, well, you need to submit to me because Paul said so. No, this verse is for the wives to hear. Secondly, he doesn't command obedience. Unlike all other household codes, he doesn't command obedience. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul says, children, obey your parents. In chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, slaves, obey your master. Over here, he doesn't command obedience. In fact, the the, the Greek verb that's translated submit is not an imperative. It's not a command. In fact, it's in the passive voice. That means no one is forcing you to submit, but you are voluntarily choosing to submit yourself. That's why the updated NIV, unlike lots of other translations, has translated the verse, submit yourself, to communicate that idea of that passive, voluntary submitting yourself. And we meant to uh, submit as you do to the Lord, as we do to Jesus. So the question is, well, how do we submit to Jesus? Will we submit to Jesus in response to his sacrificial love for us? Jesus doesn't force us to submit to him against our will. No. We voluntarily choose to submit to Jesus because he loved us and he died for us. Paul then says in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ... Well, husband is the head of the wife. So again, over here, he, he's affirming the traditional hierarchical structure of male headship, which he's which is just accepted within his day, the cultural norm. But then he immediately qualifies it and subverts it. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. You see, when we hear the word headship, we're thinking of someone exercising authority and a power over someone, and we always deem that to be oppressive. Which, in large cases, in Paul's culture, it was. So Paul immediately qualifies the headship that he's talking about. He's not talking about a headship in in an authoritative way, in in a power-controlling way, but in the way of Jesus, in the way of love. How does Jesus become the head of the church? He's our Savior. He sacrifices himself. He loves us so much that he dies for us. Paul goes on in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The shocking thing, the controversial thing over here is that Paul doesn't say anything about a husband ruling over his wife. Rather, he says he needs to love her. And not love with like a romantic love or a sentimental love like the love of today. No, with sacrificial love like Jesus. That means that the husband has to give up sacrifice 
his interests and his desires so that his wife can pursue her interests and her desires. It means that he puts his wife's interests and desires and wants above his own. That means he doesn't stifle or frustrate his wife in any way, but rather encourages her and supports her to reach her full potential and to become everything that God called her to be and and, and created her to be. That's loving someone sacrificially. And that's the headship that Paul is calling us to. Or calling husbands to. In verse 28, he says, In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And over here, Paul is taking the ultimate ethic, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's expressing it as love your wife as yourself. So can you see how radically Paul is undermining the traditional hierarchical structures of male headship? He's radically undermining it. And he's promoting a profound equality. So you might be thinking, well, well, why didn't Paul just tell the wives that they don't need to submit anymore and, and that they should have mutual authority with their husbands? I mean, why doesn't he say that? Well, remember how he started in verse 21. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. As followers of Jesus, we all need to be submitting. Mutually submitting to one another. And in his cultural context, well, the wife is already submitting, so that's great. What he needs to do is get the husband to come down into the position of sacrificially loving his wife. You see, this is a revolution, but it's not a bottom-up revolution. It's a top-down revolution. Most revolutions, it's the powerless grabbing the power. But over here, it's the powerful, the husband, giving up the position of power and coming down and sacrificially loving and serving their wife. Just as Jesus, the powerful, came not to be served, but to serve. For what does it mean To sacrificially love. If the husband is sacrificially loving his wife, he is submitting to her in a far more profound way. And if the wife is voluntarily submitting to her husband, then she is loving her husband in a far more profound way. What does it mean to sacrificially love? It means giving up of yourself for your spouse. And what does it mean to voluntarily be submitting? It means giving up yourself for your spouse. 
And that's what Paul says at the end in, in verse 33. This is the end of the whole section. This sums up his whole argument. And this verse also mirrors the first verse of the section in verse 21. And he says in verse 33, However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, the word translated uh, respect is, I mean, translated respect is too soft of a word. It needs to be a lot more stronger. It's the same Greek word that's translated in verse 21 as reverence. Same word. In verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And so it most certainly includes respect, but it's far more than that. It's about the wife revering her husband, adoring her husband. And so the picture over here is of two people mutually loving, mutually submitting, mutually adoring each other. Profound equality. Unfortunately, this passage has been misinterpreted as supporting the traditional hierarchical structures of male headship. And the reason, the problem, and the reason why that has happened is because people have applied the letter of the text rather than the spirit, the practice rather than the principle, the, the literal words rather than the intention of the text. That they focus on the literal words that says wife submit and husband is head, and they've merely applied that, misapplied that. And more than that, they've read their cultural assumptions into what those phrases mean and concluded that, that the, the husband must be the breadwinner, the wife must be the stay-at-home mom who looks after the kids and does all the cooking and cleaning. And if you point out to them, but, but Ephesians chapter 6 says the, that the father needs to help raising the kids, and then they'll say something like, well, I guess that means he should cut the grass. But the biggest problem has been the way they apply the text. They focus on the literal words, the, the words at face value rather than discovering the attention of the text, the purpose of the text, the underlying principle of the text. You see, it's absolutely vital if we're going to use the Bible in order to, to make ethical decisions that we discover what the intention of the text is. What is the underlying principle? What is the spirit of the text? And the way we do that is by understanding the cultural context. And when we read Paul in the light of his cultural context, it becomes abundantly clear that he is promoting a very profound equality where the husband and wife are mutually loving, mutually serving, mutually adoring each other. You see, if we just read uh, Paul's words at face value in total isolation from the context, if we just read his words at face value, then we will conclude that Paul's a sexist, a chauvinist. But the people in the first century in Ephesus, when they read Paul's words, they concluded Paul's a feminist. Not a feminist in the sense that he's anti-male, but a feminist in the sense that he's promoting this profound equality between a husband and wife. And so do you realize that if we apply the words at face value, just literally, we will actually be going against the very intention, the very purpose of the passage. 
Do, do you see that? We will actually be going in the opposite direction. We will be working against the spirit of the text, the intention and the purpose of the text. So practically, how do we apply this text in today's culture? In a culture where women are seen, wives are seen as equals, where they're not young teenagers who are uneducated, expected to stay at home and obey their husband. In fact, many wives might be more educated than their husband, and they might have a higher paying job than their husband. Like my wife, for example. (laughs) How do we apply the text into this context? Well, we don't apply the literal words. We don't just take the words at face value. We apply the intention of the text, the purpose of the text, the spirit of the text, which we've already seen was Paul promoting a profound equality of mutual loving, mutual submitting, mutual adoring of each other. Okay, you might say, but who actually makes the decisions? This is where the rubber hits the road. Who actually makes the decisions? Well, we make them mutually together. Well, well, what about a situation where, where you can't agree, you can't find a compromise, you need to make a decision straight away? Surely then, in such a situation, the, the husband, as the head of the house, has the final say. Well, if that is what you have mutually agreed, if you have mutually agreed that in such a situation, the husband will have the final say, that's great. That can really work. However, if you've mutually agreed that in such a situation, the wife has the final say, that's equally good. Or perhaps a more common sense approach would be, well, if it's in an area where the husband has greater expertise, he has final say. But if it's in an area where the wife has greater expertise, she has the final say. That might be a more common sense approach. And if you mutually agree that the best thing for your family is for the husband to be the breadwinner and for the wife to stay at home and be a stay-at-home mom who looks up the kids and does all the housework, that's great. If that's what you've mutually agreed, you can find a lot of value in those roles. However, if you mutually agreed that the wife should go and work and the husband should stay at home and look after the kids and do all the housework, that is equally good if that's what you've mutually agreed would work best for your family. Or you might mutually decide, like Victoria and I, that we're both going to go and work full time, and we're both equally going to take the responsibility of raising the kids, and we're going to equally divide the household chores amongst us. Although it must be said that Victoria takes a lead in dividing up the household chores. (laughs) If it was left to me, we would be eating pizza every night. (laughs) But mutually loving, mutually submitting, mutually adoring each other. Last thing, in a Christian marriage, it's not just two people, it's three. And the third person in the Christian marriage is Jesus. The wife submitting as we submit to Jesus. The husband loving as Jesus loves us. 
The head of a Christian marriage is always Jesus. We're now going to have our Q&A. We did this last time, but if you weren't here, what we're going to do is we're going to break up into just little groups, just people around, uh, might be three or four, whoever you're naturally grouping into. And if there are any comments, any questions, any testimonies, anything you want to share or or, or say, talk amongst your group. And then after that, we can get various people as a spokesperson from the group who can air some of those questions or make some of their comments or share some of the testimonies from from your group. So just spend a few moments uh, discussing uh, what we just heard. Great. Excellent. It's lovely to see so many many discussions happening. Um, Is is there anyone who would like to air a a question or share a a testimony? We were just saying we wondered how much the war has changed things in this country. Women, more equality. They had to go out to work. They had to keep things going. Mm. But in lots of countries in the world... It hasn't altered, is it? Oh, oh, exactly. And, and education being another big one, which, again, driving, driving in, in, in this country, which has changed that inequality. As, of course, another huge change is the introduction of birth control in modern times, so that a, a woman is not always pregnant and, and is much fitter and able to do Yes, that. yes, yes, absolutely, yes, yes. Good, good, good point. Mm. I, I, I guess I was thinking, you know, this particular topic is is for those who actually believe because Jesus you know we go to Jesus as the head yes as it were. but it's, it's very difficult making decisions and you know who makes the last final decision <laughs> I find <laughs> we're here from the other side now <laughs> I, I've had a problem and my friend encouraged me to look at those verses 26 as well to make her holy cleansing her by washing with water through the word. And in other words, he said, Steve, when you're ever in conflict, you've got to go to the word. You've got to pray together. You've got to ask, you know, what does the scripture say? What, what is the teaching here? And sometimes, as you pointed out, you know, you can... But I think it's not always the answer, but I think if you have that kind of attitude, well, there is something there in terms of directive... Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the, the other thing, of course, is the, the attitude of mutually submitting. You know, one of the re- reasons I think why Paul doesn't go and say, okay, let's, let's have two heads, but we're rather having two servants, is you, you, when you're having conflict, you actually need to be selfless. We actually need to put ourselves in that situation and think, well, what would Jesus do? What is the selfless thing? And then it's a lot easier to find resolution and compromise if you're both coming from a point of selflessness rather than selfishness. And even love today, so today we all value love, and, and most marriages will be like, oh, we're all equally all about love. But a lot of that love is quite selfish. It is about, what, I love my wife because she does stuff for me, and I get something out of it, even if that's a feeling of being loved. Real selfless love is about, what can I do for her? How can I see? And I think that verse you just quoted, about her becoming this radiant bride, and, and we both got that idea of, the other person becoming everything that God wants them, and I'm going to serve them and help them. It's far easier to deal with conflict in, in that context. Oh, yes. Just one example. Once again, price rushing off, bullet a gate, and I was going off to Angola to do mission work at an awful time when I shouldn't have gone. Stella almost killed herself by crossing over a railroad track in Nova Scotia because she was so et up with this. 
And I was saying, Lord, why are you blocking me? And the scripture was, you know, this is the word of God, Malachi chapter 2. Another thing you do, you flood the, altar, the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accept them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? I say, why, why, why aren't you doing it, God? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. She's your partner, the wife, by marriage covenant. Didn't I make you one in flesh and spirit? Wow. I tell you what, I got on my knees, I confessed my guilt, my arrogance, and I think the Lord wanted to teach me a better mm. lesson. So the scripture can answer us. Oh, oh absolutely, yes. So in our group, we've got a mixture, obviously, of, of ages, which is really interesting. And I was particularly interested to hear what Hugh and Mary felt about um, sort of teaching and culture when they got married. And it was very different to now. I don't know if you want to go on. He expressed it really well. I don't know what I said now. I think certainly when we were young, and we were talking about this, the 70s, early 70s, uh, the traditional line was what, what most evangelicals believed. And um, it took us a few years, I guess, to, to start to understand the cultural context and for that to be taught mm. or written about. Mm. You know, it, it, it didn't happen overnight. But I think there's been a bit of a revolution and far more people now are thankfully aware of, uh, of what you were explaining. Mm. Again, I think with most of these things, uh, Bible, Bible teachers, scholars know about this, start writing it in the commentaries, but it takes a long time before it actually impacts the local church. Uh, again, I think all the, all the local churches get, the, the traditional view becomes such a dominant view, the teaching doesn't really come. But yet, if you go back, you'll read back in commentaries and stuff for quite a while, it's been highlighting this, this cultural context. Great. Okay. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.